Hello and welcome to Blowing Cartridges, the gaming podcast where we dive into the issues surrounding gaming culture and the games themselves. I'm Brendan Tam, and joining me as always is my good friend and co-host, Zach Clark. So Zach, I think tonight we can gladly announce that Blowing Cartridges remains an independent podcast. We have not been acquired by any media conglomerates. Uh, I know a few of them tried. Uh, I know you had a call from um, old man Murdoch and he was very interested, but uh, we we had the pleasure of saying no. So uh, how do you feel that we remain independent, Zach? I feel glad, but poor. (laughs) So give me money, give me more money (laughs) so that we feel glad and less poor. Thanks. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'd recommend just direct donations to Zach so he doesn't try to set up his OnlyFans account again because no, that I, was a I know <laughs> we, we really had to stop him from uh, doing that and that there were some dark, dark days there. But uh, nonetheless, uh, as you might be able to ascertain from our um, clunky intro, the, what we want to discuss today is the growing trend that's happened over the last month, in particular with, well, not even just the last month, it's been coming for the last couple of years now with all manner of different gaming developers, publishers and the like being bought by other larger publishers and developers. And we have a, it, it is um definitely a growing trend in the industry that you have a concentration of ownership. And we, I know my, I myself and Zach, we've talked about this many times personally. We, we have some fears regarding this. We don't think it's a positive direction that the industry is going in and, uh, to join us in this discussion because we do want to dive into it as to why we believe that and what direction we do think the industry is going in and why acquisitions as a whole points towards that. We have uh, Matt S back from Digitally Downloaded Games who joined us a couple of episodes ago and uh, he also has some keen insights on this topic. There's a great YouTube video on his YouTube account for his website that went up last week, I believe, or the week before, which I definitely recommend giving a watch because I think it really um, hones these issues down into about a 12-minute video. But uh, thanks for joining us again, Matt. I am shocked you had me back on, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. (laughs) I love being back. Thanks for for having me, everybody. I'm just just always surprised when anybody actually asks me for my thoughts. On on Twitter, I I certainly wouldn't recommend people read my thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, I've always enjoyed reading your tweets, Matt. I think you you have a great perspective on things, and I think it, it always it's and it's a real perspective as well. You always, you don't beat around the bush. It's always direct, and I like direct. Poke the bear as such, and exactly. and the hornet's nest at the same time. And usually, I do get stung, but hey, it is what it is, and I'm too old to change. So, I guess for us to start, Zach, do you want to give just a brief overview of just the major acquisitions that have happened recently? I think. I guess because we could start with a few different directions. Like there's all the Microsoft ones that have been coming as they launch Game Pass. There's always what THQ Nordic's doing off in the side that no one really pays attention to, but is also, I guess, indicative of the trend. So I guess if you want to have an attempt to tie it all together to provide a base for this discussion. Yeah, I mean, obviously for the last few years, we've seen a number of acquisitions from all all over the shop. You know, we've obviously seen, as you said, THQ Nordic now called Embracer Group, which is a very, I don't know, ironic or apt name, depending on your perspective, um, embracing lots of little companies into its uh, its midst. And then, uh, you know, obviously Tencent has been either acquiring or investing in a number of companies. And then probably the biggest, by far, 
has been Microsoft uh, over the last number of years as it went on a shopping spree of various studios and publishers to expand its, you know, catalog, I guess, of first party or just, you know, I guess you said, inquire stuff to, to feed into Game Pass. And we all thought last year, oh, they really have, have just, you know, topped it out with their, their massive purchase of Bethesda. And then, you know, Take-Two, I think, earlier this year was like, nah, we're going to top it out with uh, buying Zinger, even though... I don't know why Zynga's worth as much as it is. It must make a lot more money than I realize. Um, but then Microsoft's like, no, nah, go back at you and we're, we're going to buy uh, Activision Blizzard for a whopping, you know, 68 or so billion US dollars, which uh, dwarfs pretty much every other, uh, at least gaming related purchase from a, from a company standpoint you know, ever by almost, almost tenfold effectively, a bit less, but, you know, details when we're talking billions and of course you know then you know they're not alone i mean sony nintendo have also made their small smaller acquisitions over the over the years you know nintendo with next level games sony with uh most recently bungie which again has a an ironic sort of position as the former creator or the creator of halo i should say whether any of those people are still there i'm not entirely sure to be frank but (laughs) It is what it is. And yeah, this I think this January was just probably one of the most active in terms of acquisition announcements, uh, maybe just, you know, off the back of uh, reporting season for many companies. But yeah, it certainly seems to be a trend that is not uh, stopping anytime soon as, you know, certain companies get so big, they either fail or get bought, basically. And it's important to sort of understand the nuance of it all. And that's what we're hopefully going to try and unpack here today. Thanks, Zach, because I guess just to add my two cents, I think why I personally found the Activision one quite big, even though I guess you probably could have seen some of the signs, very some tea leaves that there might have been an acquisition coming from some area, not necessarily another gaming company, but maybe from private equity or the like, just due to all the various issues they've been having from PR perspective with their horrendous labor practices. But as someone who has watched the gaming industry for over 15, 20 years now, Activision has always been one of the major independent publishers. You've had Activision, Ubisoft, and EA, arguably. Those are the sort of the, have been the tentpole publishers. And then, of course, you have your console makers, and then you had some smaller publishers. And yes, there was some movement in that field, like 2K took off and, became a lot bigger than they originally were. You had Square Enix acquire Eidos and make a similar charge and Bethesda acquiring things as well, which Bethesda also is owned by Microsoft now. So it's definitely a trend that's just, it's something that is bringing warning lights in my mind that where is this actually taking us? And I guess to kick it off, and I'll go to you, Matt, because I know you have a lot to say on this part of the equation as well, but why do you think people generally say that acquisitions are a good thing because do you think they actually think it's a good thing or do you think people just have this curiosity of oh what if nintendo buys x or oh it's great if nintendo buys sega or square enix or maybe sony will and is it a console wars thing or do you think people just don't really understand what the ramifications are of what's actually going on yeah so i mean the thing is most people they don't understand the business side of the industry just as a as a general rule. And yet what they do is they sit there every quarter, every half year, every end of financial year, and they look at the financial results. And they always point to that stuff as, hey, look how great my company's doing, because it is always my company. These these things are, people attach their identity to these companies for whatever reason. And uh, 
they like to see their company succeed. And when they do, then that becomes a, a point of boast. That becomes a proof that their side of the, the, uh, the industry is doing the right thing and so on and so forth. So that's, I think that's where this acquisition thing comes from as well. People are just fundamentally, they have a need for their side to, to be proving itself as the, the best, the biggest, the wealthiest, the most powerful. And that's really where this comes from. The people who are excited for what is happening with Microsoft are exclusively people that attach part of their identity to Microsoft. And it went the same when Sony announced its acquisition of Bungie. The people that attached their identity to Sony said, hey, look, you know, Sony's doing these great things as well and and so on. So that's where it comes from, I think. And none of that is based whatsoever in any understanding about how business works. None of that is based whatsoever in any interest or concern about the creative side of the industry. That is just purely based on their need for their side to win the, the endless tribal wars that just plague our society. <laughs> not just in not just in the, the games industry, just generally there's this tribal thing that goes on through society and everybody picks a side and whatever whatever they can point to to make their side look good is, is a good thing. So that's where I think it comes from. What you just said really reminds me of a book I recently read called um, Why We're So Polarised by Ezra Klein, which is about American politics and really dives into why American politics has become so polarised as it is now. And, well, his argument is it's down to tribal identities that exist. And and he does say that it goes across society, sports teams, you name it. Like, you see tribalism everywhere. And I I think that's what we're seeing here. I think you perfectly summed it up. And And it is kind of, to follow on with your point, I mean, it makes sense, I guess, in the industry, not that these people make sense, perhaps it's the wrong phrase, but... When you go out and you buy a console for 500, 600 bucks, however much they are, uh, you then go and buy all the games. You then go and spend so much time on this console, you know, week in, week out, uh, sometimes day in, day out, you know, it becomes a big part of your life. Then you're naturally going to feel some kind of emotional attachment to it. And as a result, that emotional attachment in the way that the world works, especially when you've got these companies also on social media making their best foot, like they're, they're putting their best effort into to seem like they're your best friend and all that kind of stuff. When, when you just attach yourself to this kind of company so much, it becomes impossible to look at it critically. So the people who are attached to Microsoft and have some emotional connection to Microsoft don't have the ability to stop and think, maybe Microsoft spending $70 billion to acquire the biggest third-party publisher is not good for video games. And I think that's where my frustration comes if you follow me on Twitter, you would have seen that I've more than unleashed more than a few times on it. But that's where I think the, the basic fr- frustration with all of this comes from. It's just people have lost the ability to be critical of the things that they love. I'd call us both Nintendo fanboys, Zach. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah, I think that's an apt descriptor. <laughs> so I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts on that is. Because I guess whilst I'm sort of... I back Nintendo, I guess I'd probably say if I was asked a question like I've always been a Nintendo fan. But... At the same time, I, I don't know, I don't don't want to say I'm some remarkable individual or the like, but I can kind of separate that from... I, I don't know if it's because Nintendo sort of, sort of doesn't really do acquisitions and I have an objective view because of that, or that because Nintendo just always seems to do its own thing that I can... I'm aware that Nintendo's own business practices aren't great at the best of times, that they also stifle creativity and like they, it, there's no such thing as a perfect company in a corporate capitalist world, but uh, what do you think it is? I mean, for me, I'd say that I'm certainly a Nintendo fan as well. I'm pretty sure I've told people 
uh, if not frequently, that I, I consider the Switch to be the best console that I've ever, I've ever owned, and mm. I've owned them all the way back to the Game Boy. I think the Switch is an exceptional console. I've always owned Nintendo products. I would say that I am probably partial to Nintendo, and I do have some kind of emotional connection to Nintendo. I, I definitely feel nostalgic when Nintendo does stupid things like puts out Mario Collection for six months. <laughs> I find myself instinctively needing to support this thing. <laughs> so I, I definitely feel it myself. But at the same time, when I come down to, you know, when it comes time to sit there and actually think critically about the industry, if Nintendo was to go out tomorrow and say, hey, you know, uh, we've bought Square Enix or we bought Sega or we bought Koei Tecmo, I would be highly critical of that because that, again, is just more of that consolidation. So, yeah, I, I think that it is important to... I mean, it's totally fine to, to be attached to some company's stuff because that it is what it is. But, yeah, we do need to... When, when the point comes that we need to step back and be able to look at these things critically, we also need to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... It's probably due to the fact that, as you said, that Nintendo's acquisition strategy has seemingly largely been out of, I I don't know if necessity is the right word, but more like a company they work with is going on the market and it's either buy them or risk them going to another another team or another company and not having access to their resources. Because, I mean, if if you even think about Nintendo's, like if you're a somewhere between a hardcore like enthusiast and uh and just someone who plays nintendo games you you probably see names like hell intelligent systems um and a bunch of others game freak and you think oh they're like part of nintendo when they're, they're not right like nintendo follows and probably matt you might know this this a bit better than i do but that slightly more common partnership model that you see in japan of you know We'll buy a little bit of shares in each other. We'll form a strategic alliance and then, you know, almost out of honor as well, work together for, you know, extended periods of time. And that seems to be more their style for the most part, rather than, you know, specifically buying a full company. I think a good example that got a lot of publicity was when they partnered with DNA on their mobile titles. You can probably find a lot of articles explaining how that general, I don't know, transaction is the right word, but that partnership panned out and i think it's probably a very similar case for those other companies except it was back in the 80s and 90s before we in the west probably paid as much attention to the company as we do now the thing with nintendo and this is probably worth mentioning for people who are listening on the podcast interested in perhaps why this acquisition spree that's going on in the west with you know activision and bethesda and all the stuff thq is doing why that's not really happening in japan and it is it is an interesting one the thing is, Japanese companies don't specialize in stuff. Japanese companies have, they form conglomerates, which are you know a whole bunch of very different kinds of companies pulled into one. So, for example, a really good example is Konami. Uh, Konami has the game business, which we all know, and a lot of us <laughs> are increasingly annoyed mm-hmm. with. But Konami also has a massive network of gyms in Japan. Konami has... The pachinko business, which is a gambling business. Sega is another example. Sega has a toys business, which produces kind of, you know, collectible toys for UFO catchers, you know, the the skill games in arcades. So if you were to acquire Sega, if you were to acquire Konami, you end up with a whole company. And if stuff in that company doesn't really fit your business model, then you've got to go through the expense of not only paying for that, but then offloading it. 
So, I mean, for example, everybody seems to want Konami to be acquired because they seem to have in their heads that if Microsoft was to come in and acquire Konami, all of a sudden we'd get Suikin games again and stuff. Microsoft's not going to buy Konami because if Microsoft bought Konami, Microsoft would end up with this fitness club business in Japan, which they have no idea what to do with. So either they offload it and that costs money, um, they paid for it and then they have to pay to get rid of it, or they just try and make it work. So that's why companies are not being bought in Japan. And so the point about Nintendo, Nintendo does work very closely with a lot of companies. Nintendo gets a lot of stuff done with uh, Koei Tecmo, for example. They do joint ventures. So Fatal Frame or Project Zero, for example, is actually a joint-owned product now between Nintendo and Koei Tecmo. But to actually acquire the whole company is a very difficult business proposition in Japan. And I don't think that we're going to see too many of these Japanese publishers get bought for that reason. You know, the last big one I can recall was obviously the Sega Atlas purchase. But again, that was kind of Atlas putting themselves on the market saying we're here to be bought and i think there were quite a few and and i mean atlas didn't have so much of this other stuff atlas was a pure mm. play business which made it an attractive acquisition mm. the mergers between koei and tecmo and square and enix were a, a better example but when square enix for example went and bought stuff like you said earlier in the podcast they went to the west and they bought ados because that was a specialized business that it could add into their group mm, and it rem- well it reminds me of also the bandai namco merger in that I believe at the time Nintendo actually had a lot of Bandai shares and there was some, I think I've read in the dark corners of the internet once that there were some speculation that Nintendo was interested in Bandai, but they also have a lot of non-gaming parts of their business at the time and what they still do is Namco Bandai. And I believe that's also ties into one of the acquisitions Nintendo did make around that time, which was Monolith Soft. And I believe that may have been a bit of a swap in that Namco Bandai gave them their shares in Monolith Soft and Nintendo, and Nintendo, in return, sold their Bandai shares to the new merged um, entity. And the uh, as Zach um, inferred also, the other one that happened recently was Next Level Games, which was a Western studio, of course, and Nintendo purely acquired them because the owners approached them and said, look, we want to sell our company and we work well with Nintendo, so, like, what, what do you think? And I think that probably is sort of an outlier in this discussion in that from the outset we said acquisitions are bad because we want a diverse gaming industry but i think i think it can exist in a diverse market which i don't think we have a diverse industry at the moment i think it is consolidating but i think even in a diverse one you'd still have mergers and acquisitions and the like and i don't think that's necessarily a bad thing yeah for me i'm i think the rule that i've always kind of taken as as a good one for acquisitions and it was I can't even remember which CEO it was. I was at a, an event. This was back when I was doing business journalism. And there was a CEO there that was explaining their acquisition strategy because they'd gone and done some. And their basic idea was, we'll only acquire stuff is if we can add more value to the customers of that new company that we've acquired, mm-hmm. then they could add themselves. So it was an acquisition that was additive. You know, By acquiring this company... They can that company can do better for their customers, which is that 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 to me has always struck me as a, a good line for judging whether an acquisition is a good thing or not. If it's going to be additive or if it was going to be subtractive, and I think overall, um, without trying to to wave the flag for Nintendo or whatever, I think overall Nintendo's acquisition strategy has been additive by acquiring Monolith Software. 
Monolith Software has had the resources to do better work. And I think that's been a good thing for them. When Koei Tecmo acquired Gust, the JRPG developer, Gust then had the resources to do better work. And that was a good thing. When I look at what Microsoft's doing, when I look at what Sony is doing with these big acquisitions that they're making, I don't see where they're going to add value through them. Microsoft's acquiring Activision to take stuff from you know Activision. Sony's acquiring Bungie to take stuff. It's not to add. It's not to make Bungie do better. It's to bring it in within Sony and take control of it. And I think that that is a poor acquisition. Yeah, I am going to agree for the most part. I'm just thinking there's one, not, I don't know if it's recent is the right word anymore, but when I look at the Microsoft Mojang, or let's be honest, the Minecraft acquisition, that was an interesting one because I agree with the sentiment that they obviously bought Minecraft because they wanted Minecraft because why wouldn't you <laughs> at the time? And even now it's still a massive property but at the same time i also look at what that company was and where it could have headed had it not been acquired whether it was by microsoft or someone else with you know its founder as many joe cuts and amiku but really we're talking about uh, marcus pearson notch going into a bit of a, a downward spiral let's say um and i would say given his track record post that time has shown he may have not been the most fit to run a company that runs a game that popular for children and had he stayed you know the sole owner of the company or maybe had some shares given out to some of the other um parties within the the group i'm not too sure that may have been a worse outcome than what has ultimately been a good outcome i think of of the mojang story and i guess the minecraft story for the last you know however many years it's been certainly could have gone the other way and still could right like we could still see microsoft one one day you know shoehorning minecraft away from other systems and really trying to push it on game pass or on windows or xbox but so far that's been a really i think good example of them not taking it away from the fan base but helping it stay supported grow stay safe compared to say some of the other stuff they did earlier like obviously Lionhead's a really good example where they just bought used it up and basically sent the studio into you know well they closed it right and that was certainly a fear at the time when they bought Mojang and it was I think you know they haven't got enough of a track record yet to say that won't happen again particularly with the however many studios they bought in the last few years it's they've they've still got a lot of proof in the pudding to to provide to all of us well i think mojang's a good example of an acquisition i would say is is generally was a positive one because it did take a company that was a high risk company because it had one product and that's it and had very limited capabilities beyond that product when it was acquired so by acquiring it microsoft was able to give it that stability that you mentioned they were able to give it resources to continue to build on it. And I'm not the world's biggest fan of Minecraft, but I do understand that there has been a lot done with it in the years since, which may well not have happened without that acquisition. So without having that resource behind it. So that's a good thing. When I look at what Microsoft's strategy is behind all the rest of the acquisitions that it's been making recently, they're not doing it to get resources into those companies. I can't see there being a possible scenario where Microsoft spends however many additional billion dollars to hire so many more people within Bethesda or Activision so they can publish more games, create more games and all that kind of stuff. 
these businesses are going to continue running the way they were running beforehand. What Microsoft has done to buy them or why Microsoft has bought them is simply to take control of the IP and take, to take control of the, the properties. And it is all about the Game Pass thing. They want people on Game Pass. They want to have the guarantee that there's going to be the content on Game Pass to make Game Pass a success. So that's why they've bought it. There's no intention there on adding value to these companies. It's just to take what that company already produces. I agree, and it very much reminds me of um, what's happened to the film industry in that now you have just a few major uh, production companies, or you have a lot of production companies, but when it comes to film companies, it's very much been consolidated in your Warner Bros., your Disney's, and uh, what have you. And it's really, yes, there's still a room for independent-made films, and there's still a lot that do make it to cinemas, but you've had a consolidation of blockbusters in in the cinema. You have your Marvel monoliths and you're now starting to see a similar trend in the streaming space with um, streaming providers creating their own um, productions and often those are very heavily consolidated as well from um, particular sectors. So I think it probably is a good point to jump into the other part of this topic in that the role that Game Pass is playing in shaping the industry, because I think it definitely is. I think Microsoft's moves have definitely been driven by their tactics around Game Pass, and I think that has also led to a reaction from other publishers like Sony. And uh, I don't know if we want to get into THQ Nordic Embracer Group later as well, because I think that's a fascinating and different example, I think. I, I honestly don't know where they get all their money from. I think that would be a very interesting case study to actually dive into that. But... Going back to Game Pass for a bit, I, I think we probably can go on for at least two podcast lengths as to why Game Pass is not a good thing. But what's your thoughts on it, Matt? I know you you and I share a lot of thoughts on it, but why do you think it's a negative? Why, why do you think it's going to impact upon the creativity of the industry? Yeah, so two things, I guess. Firstly, just basic observation. Um, these subscription services have not been good in any other field, so I can't see how they can possibly be good in the games industry. Uh, where it's more mature, you see you know, Spotify and uh, Netflix and all of that, and they've fundamentally undermined the creativity of their respective industries. They make it harder for independent artists to get visibility. They cut the money out from the artists to the benefit of them. And it's just an econo- a basic economic thing, you know. If you're paying, well, I don't know, what even, what is Spotify at the moment? Let's say $20. If you're paying $20 a month for Spotify, if you're the kind of music user or the kind of music fan that would spend more than $20 per month on CDs or whatever, basically buy one CD, then they're getting less money out of you if that's the only thing that you use. It's the same for Netflix. If you would go to the cinema once per month, but instead you're going to subscribe to Netflix, all of a sudden the the film industry is making less money because you're watching less films for less money per film. It's the same with Game Pass. You know, the games industry business model previously was resting on the fact that people would buy games at a premium price up front and there would be sales later on down the track. But the basic idea was that you would pay once, you'd take your game, you'd play the game, and then when the next game came along that you wanted to play, you'd buy it. Game Pass fundamentally undermines that. And in doing so, not only does it become you have to beg Microsoft to let you put your game, your game on their platform, 
it's not good for anything that's not on Game Pass. Game Pass is just consuming all the money in the Xbox ecosystem. So unless you can get your game on Game Pass, firstly, you're, you're screwed to try and publish stuff on Xbox. Secondly, the metrics have changed. So where once what games were judged on as far as being commercial successes was how much money they made, how many copies they sold. So that changes with Game Pass because developers get paid based on how many hours people play in their games. So all of a sudden, you're incentivizing game developers to create 500-hour-long games, to use a certain example that's recently done the Twitter thing. You're incentivizing developers to create, to, to spread a game that might have been worth 20 hours over 500 hours instead. And that undermines the creativity of the games. And on top of that, that means people play less games. So there's less market there for games, uh, for creating new games, for trying new things, for being creative, for being independent. So all of these things mean that Game Pass seems like it's a good value to the consumer for now but longer term we're going to have less interesting things to play we are going to be paying more i remember when i started with netflix it was 10 bucks a month and now it's up to 22 bucks a month or something they're going to cost more and we're going to get less value out of them because the games are just not going to be as interesting Yes, and I think there's also the aspect to how those services work. They use various um, well metrics and they look at what you watch and they only show you similar things to what you've already watched. And I, I see that happening with Game Pass. It will sort of herd you into a particular type of game. And if you're a small indie developer trying to make it, maybe you have the next Undertale or the next Hollow Knight. If you're not going viral and uh, you're all over social media and people think, oh, I want to give that a go, it's a lot harder to organically get an audience whereas in the traditional model it was yes oh it might be oh you need to go to steam and pay twenty dollars for the game but that that is um some someone can say oh that's going to be my game for the month whereas with game pass it'll be well i have game pass that's my monthly spend i spend on video games i could play the small indie game but i'm going to play the next halo or the next call of duty because i know i like that and um, that's going to use up all my time because I don't have copious amounts of time to play games all the time. Um, what's your view on Game Pass, Zach? Um, have Have you used it yourself? Or uh, I did a free trial once for like a month, and then I forgot to unpay, so I had it for like another, you know, three months or something. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, yeah, I mean, you you're both spot. I think right now we're in that like golden Nirvana thing where like it seems too good to be true from a consumer standpoint because, as you said, it's quite at this point in time quite affordable gives you access to a lot of games uh and from that perspective it looks good right because more accessibility to games for less money in theory good for consumer but as you as you said matt that's deceptive because uh you know there's a whole concept in in economics of the whole sort of um you know breakthrough sort of price point where you, you sell things either at a loss or very cheap to get people in the door get yourself into a market leading position and then you jack up the price uh, and people just put up with it because well you're the best in the market i'm still gonna i'm just gonna pay you because no one else is even close and you can sort of see how microsoft and game pass is geared up for that like really 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 well like you know we've got netflix trying to do something we've got sony apparently going to do something uh, and, you know, others like Stadia seem to be falling by the wayside very quickly. So Microsoft is really, really well geared and has the money behind it. Because remember, Microsoft is not just, you know, Xbox. It is 
this trillion dollar company, one of the largest in the world, bigger than Sony, or I think bigger than, I would assume bigger than Netflix. I don't actually know how big Netflix is to be, to be completely honest with you. They have what it takes to become the king and they probably will at the rate they're going. As you, you know, we've just talked about with the acquisitions, they have acquired a lot of the premier brands, whether they're brands I care about, it's a separate question, but a lot of people love Call of Duty, a lot of people love Warcraft, Diablo, um, Fallout, etc. And even if they aren't exclusive, they're like, oh, we're playing nice, we're going to put them on other things. If and when streaming services become the thing, we're not talking about Xbox, PlayStation anymore, we're talking Game Pass and I think the codename Spartacus or whatever. You know, the fact that you get Call of Duty for free or included with that is going to sway a lot of people to starting with Game Pass and then sticking with it because it's their favorite game. Uh, they've already got EA sort of tied in there with a partnership as well. So that kind of classic, you know, Call of Duty Madden combos <laughs> pretty much there. Good to go. Yeah, it, it just it's going to become this scenario where you, it's a race between three or four streaming services. But Microsoft has already done five out of ten laps and the others are only just going to be getting started so that is the fear for me because we've certainly seen how netflix has remained dominant in its field despite some big players in the industry now you know taking a crack with you know disney plus and stan in australia and uh, paramount plus which is you know all getting there but none of them have really made the same groundwork that netflix had by being a first and i guess investing a ton of money into uh, not only acquiring rights for stuff, but also just developing a ton of their own brands uh, and and movies and TV shows to keep people hooked in. So the future is definitely scary. <laughs> I mean, the other thing to think uh, the other thing to think about when thinking about Game Pass and what Microsoft is doing, the, the reality is that Microsoft is kind of responding to the forces of of capitalism and so on. And with capitalism with any kind of business that you're in, in this, in this world, you have to keep growing, especially if you're on the stock market and you're listed as Microsoft is obviously you have to keep growing. And when you're spending money and you're kind of working on a loss leader basis as Microsoft is game pass costs, Microsoft more than Microsoft is taking in Microsoft buys Activision for much more than what Activision is going to make Microsoft in, in the near future. When that happens, the only way you keep growing is if you keep buying things. <laughs> At some point, when there is nothing left to buy, the growth has to come from somewhere else. Where that growth is going to come from is the consumers. We're all going to be paying a lot more for this stuff. So at some point, Microsoft is going to run out of things to buy. We don't know when. They may well yet buy AA and Ubisoft and Sony and whoever else they need to. But at some point, they are going to run out of things to buy. At that point, we are going to see some big-time cost increases to what we're paying for um, for Game Pass, for what we're paying for Microsoft products. And that is why monopolies have always been considered a problem because once you have a monopoly, then you no longer need to worry about competing with anybody. So you'd throw the price up. And really that's kind of what we're seeing with Netflix. Netflix had to fight hard in the initial stages because other people tried streaming services, you know, Disney and whatever. And it seems like you know, Netflix is kind of winning that battle They've spent a lot of money, so they need to find a way to grow. For Netflix, there's nowhere to acquire. So, like I said, uh, my, my, the cost of my Netflix has gone up like double 
in the last couple of years. And it's going to keep going up. It's just going to keep rising because that's the only way that Netflix can continue to grow. Mm, because in the past, they were able to or have partnerships with Disney and Marvel and get those productions onto their services. And now, well, they also had they also had customers coming on. When you're a new company, you had you have revenue coming in. So when you have your quarterly, you know, uh, meeting with your shareholders or your end of year financial results, you can point to the thing that says the numbers are going up, which Netflix is running out of. Like the 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 ability for Netflix to acquire new customers is definitely reducing. So again, they need something else to point to to say the numbers are going up because otherwise there'll be a shareholder route and before you know it, Netflix will be acquired. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure that's part of their reason for their games initiative and mm-hmm. their acquisition Absolutely. of, um, well, what are they called? The Oxenfree developers? Like, I don't even remember their studio, but I know their game, but anyway. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. Find a new product segment, which is what Netflix is trying to do. If that's not mm. successful, which it may well not be, who knows? I mean, Netflix's dabbling in games so far has not been impressive. <laughs> It's been like Amazon's dabbling in video games. Yeah, and I mean, if you think about it, look at the resources of Amazon, and they still haven't managed to make it work. So I, I would be very surprised if Netflix ends up being the major game publisher. This is an experiment that probably won't work. I want to take a point you sort of made there, or a word you said, and sort of just flesh that out a bit, which is the the capitalism word, because I think that's an interesting the thing c that word needs to be. <laughs> oh yeah, the c word <laughs> addressed because. There are, like, quote-unquote, some silver linings people will point out to scenarios where uh, acquisitions may be good. But I think, ultimately, all those good things are only good because we know we're playing in that framework of of capitalism, right? Like, a a recent small acquisition, but one that got a lot of attention, was obviously the New York Times purchase of Wordle, uh, of Josh Wardle. (laughs) And, you know, it's in the framework of capitalism, kind of an okay outcome, right? Where it's a guy who's like, I accidentally made something successful. I don't want it to die, but I don't want to keep supporting it because that was never my intention. I'll, I'll make a couple million bucks and it's, you know, going to a company that at least he likes. I don't really know enough about the New York's time to make my own opinion, but I know a lot of people find them to be quite bad. So <laughs> I take that for what you will. But it is a solution for him to exit and for the program or the game to continue on that works within this framework. In an ideal scenario, maybe like he doesn't need to worry about money. So it's just like, let me just make it open source and put it out there and who cares. But that's just not the reality we currently face in. Another thing is people often talk about, oh, it's great. People are buying these studios or these companies who haven't touched these brands for so long. Maybe somebody will do something with these brands now that they own it. But again, you know, wouldn't it be great if like some of those brands that haven't had a game in 10, 20 years were made public and anyone could just take a crack at, you know, their own I don't know, pitfall or something like that, uh, that Activision basically let to die because they consolidated everything into into a Call of Duty mass studio effectively. So I think that's just worth acknowledging, I guess. I don't know what the opinion is there, but yeah, I just wanted to get them on the table. <laughs> That's kind of the, the, the utopic vision of capitalism, and that's how it was meant to work as it was originally envisioned by the people that stuck us with it. And when there is competition, that works. So when somebody buys Konami and makes a new Suikoden game, which is great for everybody that loves their classic JRPGs, everyone's happy. Somebody bought that because they saw the opportunity to make money from that acquisition 
in a way that they wouldn't be able to to make any in other ways there there is an incentive there to play in niche spaces when there is a lot of companies out there and the competition is kind of spread that doesn't happen the more consolidated an industry gets what happens when you get closer towards the monopoly is that the incentive to be creative drops because you're going to make the money anyway and you can brute force your way into making money if you need to so it's better to stick to safe ideas that are proven because on top of everything else you also need to compete about against these companies that are becoming bigger themselves that's why we see every single triple a game out there is a, a, a nonsense open world thing that just rams whatever story it has into the same game that we've played a million times before I was on the preview for Ghostwire Tokyo the other night, and uh, I love the theme of that game. You know, you've got a ghost, techno, cyberpunk, horror game set in Tokyo with all the neon lights and all the, you know, Yurei and kind of Japanese mythology. That should have been a game that was directly for me. But then I started to watch it being played. It's another Far Cry. It's another ubisoft thing it's another sony open world thing it plays exactly the same as all of those other games i was very disappointed by that but that is what is actually happening so we're getting fewer ideas the companies that are being acquired they're being cherry-picked for their stuff that is most popular activision's not going to start publishing its sierra stuff again because that's not going to make enough money to be worth the acquisition price so yeah it, it's not so much an issue with capitalism and its great concept and if we had capitalism set up to be to have the right checks and balances to prevent monopolies from forming then it would all be hunky-dory and we'd all be having a great time it wouldn't be an issue if somebody bought activision because there'd be a million other companies out there producing other stuff instead but we don't have that what we have is an environment that is allowing monopolies to happen and we're seeing monopolies start to form really as i put out in a tweet I, don't, I can't remember when, or just after the news amounts. If anybody's actually played Monopoly, just kind of pay attention to the game you're playing and you'll see this isn't good, you know? Somebody ending <laughs> up with all the properties down three of the sides and then somebody else has got Old Ken and, and Whitechapel, that doesn't make for a fun game for anyone. <laughs> so, you know, Monopoly <laughs> is, a, is a game we all like to rag on, but it kind of makes a point and I don't think anybody really pays attention to that. Oh, exactly. I think a lot of board game enthusiasts uh, just get to derive too much pleasure from talking about how bad of a game Monopoly is. It's a terrible game. The, yeah. they, they forget the fact it's a terrible game for a reason. Like, that was in the, design, the original design. Yeah. It's a commentary on capitalism, on Monopolies, which is ironic since it's the most capitalised uh, board game out there, I think, from all the various editions and the mind. Like, nearly everyone in the world, I think, in the Western world anyway, has played a game of Monopoly at some point. We're, in we're going to get a, a Monopoly's Microsoft uh, acquisitions edition. <laughs> they have enough <laughs> studios now, right? Totally. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so they, they finally have enough acquisitions and studios, Zach, and IPs to have a Super Smash Brothers game that won't have ten versions of Master Chief, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you're not you're not wrong. They have finally an iconic selection of characters that they've purchased over the years. Um, or in the last two years mostly. Which, yeah, I mean, look, like anyone, I'm keen to see how they do or don't use those franchises. But I think, you know, you're right, Matt, in terms of... I mean, I think you can just look at Activision and EA themselves in terms of, like, how they're, like, 
published games each year have shrunk or homogenized so drastically and it's hard to imagine a world and where you know microsoft doesn't do the same at some point right like i mean it's already kind of in their model like 343 is the halo team right it's not 343 making different shooters or different games at all every year it's, it's just they constantly churn out halo uh, and you can sort of see that potentially happening with these other studios at some point, you know, maybe, you know, Double Fine becomes the Psychonauts, you know, studio or Ninja Theory, just the Hellblade studio. I mean, you don't want that to be the way it goes, but it's hard to not see the temptation to just focus on the growth, focus on what's successful and just really pigeonhole the company's down those paths uh, and again i think they had a track record of it with with again lionhead with with fable where they just that's what they did they made them the fable studio despite them obviously having a, a broader history beyond that yeah i mean even activision before the acquisition and i'm by no means the world's biggest fan of activision but even activision had the incentive to go out there and publish a game like sekiro you know activision doesn't own sekiro activision didn't develop it themselves they work with a third party they just published the game because it made sense to them as a business to have that product you know uh, out there and and done with and it was great Sekiro is a really great game the the incentive for them to publish like that is greatly de-emphasized now that Microsoft is going to want them producing their own IP producing more Call of Duties and whatever else um, Blizzard does these days. So, yeah, I, I, Activision's not going to do a Sekiro 2, or they're not going to find that kind of from software developer to just publish a game because the business, it made sense to the business as a third-party independent developer, publisher. And that that's a loss for us all. Uh, <laughs> what would be more likely to happen is <laughs> from software of all the companies, I mean, I, I know I talked about how Japanese developers can be tough to acquire, but From Software is one of the few that, if you can disentangle it from Katakawa, which Katakawa may well be willing to at some point, that would be one you can acquire. So it would make more sense to Microsoft to acquire From Software than to publish a, a third party as a third party arrangement. I'm sure that has been on their their radar, to say the least. Yeah, 100%. Because even if they were to partner with someone to do a publishing deal, it's going to be like the classic old, you know, we'll publish it because we're going to make it Xbox or, you know, in the future Game Pass exclusive for six months or a year or something. Like, it, it'll be that type of publishing deal, arguably the worst kind of publishing deal versus the old, you know, as you said, Activision, Sekiro, where it's just, yep. We're publishing in the West just because we've got the money and the distribution channels to do it that From Software don't, and it'll make us money. So why not? <laughs> and it'll be on every platform because that's in our interest as an independent yeah. third-party publisher. Correct. We don't care about a console's ecosystem and all that. And that's the other thing that we haven't really talked about much tonight. It's it's the walled garden thing that really bugs me more than anything mm-hmm. else. It's not a commercial thing. It's not even kind of my own financial situation. If I really needed to, I can go out and buy an Xbox and play these games. It's not that. It's the fact that it makes games less accessible for everybody. Uh, if you have to have five different consoles to to play all these games and five different subscriptions, who has that kind of money? Not many people at all. And that is, again, something that I've seen mirrored with the the, the film space in particular. If you want to watch a film, you have to have Netflix, you have to have Paramount's one, you have to have 
Disney's one. Otherwise, there's a chance you won't be able to watch it when you want to. And because these subscription services are sucking all the money out of the industry, and because they're so incentivized to have exclusive stuff on their walled garden, that a lot of stuff you can't get normally anymore. And a good example of that, of that is the Roroni Kenshin series. I love those films. Like, I really love those films. And the first three of them were made available on iTunes, and I bought them. I've watched them all a lot of times. I was really looking forward to the fourth and fifth. What happened was Netflix went and picked up exclusive rights to those films. So I can't own them anymore. And I can't have them on my iTunes account. I have to keep a Netflix subscription going just if I want to watch those films again. And that's just not how art should work. I mean, the whole point of this digital distribution stuff, the whole point of all of this stuff that we've been doing is supposedly that it makes it all more accessible. It makes it easier to create and it makes it more easy to access. But it's gone the other way very rapidly. And it's because it benefits a very small number of executives to have people buying into their walled gardens. And that's what concerns me about Game Pass because arguably PlayStation Plus had a similar effect back in the day. Well, still does, but the fact that oh, it provides a selection of games if you're subscribed to PlayStation Plus and now people won't pay for those games. They won't pay for indie games because they, they'll say, oh, I'm not going to buy that $30 indie game. I'm not going to buy It Takes Two or Moving Out or what have you because I'll just wait for it to be on PlayStation Plus and play it for free. But the thing is, that was just on a PlayStation ecosystem. That was only for people who subscribed to PlayStation Plus. I don't think it had a massive impact on the industry because for people who were on PC or Xbox or Nintendo, well, they wouldn't be waiting for PlayStation Plus. They'd go to their shop front and buy the game if they were interested in buying it. Developers would still get their money. Everyone would be effectively happy. But it's definitely the walled garden worries me. And it's what's really going to drive, I think, other subscription models. Now, it's very much in the interest of, let's say, Sony to start really thinking about, can we expand PlayStation Plus? Do we go for a Game Pass model? Is that going to be in the interest of building PlayStation? And if it is, well, do we need to acquire 2K? Do we need to get into a strategic partnership with EA and try to outbid Microsoft so they only make games for us? What what do we do? It's I think there's going to be a lot of reactionary moves, and that's what we've seen with, honestly, the odd acquisition of Bungie, which I, I really don't see the impact of... I, I know why they did it, because it's definitely a reaction, but it's it's definitely an odd one when you compare it to the ones that Microsoft have made. It's more of a traditional acquisition in that, you're right, uh, Matt, it's not an additive, it's, oh, we want exclusive rights to Destiny, so we're going to buy the developer, but they don't really provide much more than a single game. I'm not, I'm not sure, to be honest, with the Bungie one, I'm not to be overly argumentative or anything i think that one's a bit different because i think that's actually a scenario where it's not less about destiny and more about we sony want to make more games like destiny let's buy a studio that's large and knows how to do it so that they can teach our guys how to do it as well as i guess we financially support them through continuing their game is what i i mean yes that's what they say and i know maybe that's a lie but i it makes sense to me and i i also don't believe it's reactionary to say activision because these kind of deals just don't ink themselves that quickly typically i mean even though bungie is private so it would be a little easier than say an activision which is 
I believe was public is public still, I guess, technically, because the deal hasn't closed. And, you know, that's that's fair. Like, again, that's I don't know what Sony's adding to, again, Destiny beyond money, but it is certainly I can see how there are other things beyond just the Destiny brand that Sony get out of it. Well, you have to remember, Sony doesn't really have a shooter. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. They don't really have a shooter, even if they publish on Microsoft, as I believe Sony's said that they're going to continue to do. And, I mean, Sony, in, in fairness to them, they've been better at opening up their stuff to other platforms since they publish on PC and whatever now as well. I see that as just a pure need to have a, a shooter property. I believe that was a reaction to not Activision, but because, like you said, <laughs> you don't ink a deal two weeks after, uh, two, in two weeks. So it's not like Sony saw the announcement of, of um, Activision. It was like, quick, someone get the CEO of Bungie on the phone. It, it certainly didn't happen like that. I, I believe it was actually a response to Bethesda. I reckon Sony would have known about Bethesda before it was announced because these things do hit the grapevine, the industry grapevine. So that would have been plenty of time for Sony to to figure out their response strategy. And their response strategy would have been to go big. And Sony has been going big anyway for quite some time, having, uh, having Bungie there as one of the biggest shooter developers would have would have fit with the strategy and been the useful response to show that Sony you know, remains that big company with some very big properties and big publish, uh, big developers in its uh, studio. So that's what I think happened. I don't really understand the, the broader value of Bungie, but then I never liked Bungie's games anyway. So um, that's me just being a, a bit of a troll, I guess. Uh, I, I'm sure Sony knows or Sony saw value in it. And if Sony, I, I guess... The, the thing I should mention is that I think that Microsoft and Sony, as critical as I am of them, I think they're very well-run businesses and they know what they're doing uh, and they're playing within the game that they, they're playing the game that they need to play to succeed as businesses in this industry. Plus they're playing the game that they're allowed to play by a lack of regulation and all that. But I, I think Sony is a very smartly run business. And I think if they see value in a 3 billion acquisition of Bungie, then there's value in a 3 billion acquisition of Bungie. I just find I I do find it interesting from a creative perspective in that Bungie's one of Bungie's reasonings for leaving Microsoft in the first place was that they wanted more creative freedom and they didn't want to be pigeonholed as a Halo developer and that's why that um, decoupling occurred. So you have them once again probably in an environment where they're going to be told to now nah, you need to make Destiny or you need like a big tentpole shooter franchise and maybe it can be in the tent um Destiny universe and something more single player or a battle royale focused or something. I, I definitely could see that happening, which I, I find um, there's a bit of irony there. I, in many ways. I suspect that Bungie is a difficult company to work with. <laughs> mm. I base that purely on the fact that they did have the falling out with Microsoft and whatever nice press releases and whatever they wrote, there was an obvious falling out there. And then they had a falling out with Activision because remember Destiny was meant to be a three game trilogy that Activision was going to publish. And that lasted what? to the release of Destiny 2. So, yeah, I suspect that something within Bungie makes them difficult to to work with, to control, I guess, perhaps, to deal with. Maybe they perfectionists and Microsoft and Activision weren't going to give them the same leeway that 2K gives Rockstar to just spend 70 years to make a single game if they need to. I don't know. I mean, this, this is just me making observations here, but you don't leave 2 two business deals, including mm. buying yourself out, if you're an easy company to work with. 
yeah, I think that makes sense. And to be honest, it was why I was so surprised by the purchase because of the the history just didn't lead, make sense to me why they would want to be under anyone again, unless again financially they just had to be, and maybe they did. I again no idea how well they they're doing, but anyway, that that is what it is. To pick up a thread we mentioned earlier, what's our thoughts on the Embracer Group? In that they have probably been the outside of the main publishers that everyone or that watches the gaming industry knows about. They have the entity that has been buying up all these developers and smaller publishers for nearly the last five years. And or late last year, they picked up Asmodee, the board game publisher that um, has a lot of different board game IPs. And so they seem to be stretching their tentacles in other um, regards. And Matt, could you say this is, a, is this an additive one in that it seems that they do bring back some old franchises through remasters and that they do keep some of these developers and publishers, I don't know, maybe from going under or in, in terms of some of the THQ stuff they picked up and like Deep Silver and the like, or is this purely they're just trying to grow as fast as possible, pick up all these developers and just try to mine mine the IP and resources they've picked up along the way as much as possible? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I look at that company with some concern because their behaviours don't really match with a company that's looking to make product. They seem to, their business, as I kind of mentioned before, in capitalism, you've got to grow somehow. You just have to grow. That is the goal Mm -hmm. objective and that is what you're really accountable for as an executive team when the board asks to see the financial results. So there are a number of different ways you can grow. THQ, Nordic Embracer, whatever you want to call them, their strategy to growth seems to be to pick up a lot of IP and claim that that is worth money without necessarily doing much with it. And I know we have had some announcements, like we know that there's a new time split is coming, which is great. Sign me up for that. I'm so glad that that happened. We saw that they somehow managed to resurrect Kingdoms of Amalur and then not just that, give us new DLC, which I must admit I never thought I'd see after what happened to that company. So they do work. It's not like they're not doing anything, but they're also sitting on a lot and they keep buying a lot more and then just sitting on it. So I suspect that their goal is really just to hoard, hoard IP, you know, like like the guy, like the dragon from The Hobbit just kind of sits on a, a mound of gold. Smog. Yeah, yeah, smog. Sorry, it's late. I completely forgot my Tolkien <laughs> law there. But yeah, that, that seems to be their strategy. And that is not, they're not the only company that does that. And it is, I'm certainly not suggesting that there's anything unethical or anything kind of dodgy about that. That is a legitimate strategy that they're playing through. But again, for outcomes, as gamers, as consumers, as people that want to play games that does mean that there's a lot of IP sitting there that may well go very unused for a very long time. Yeah, I was just reading up a bit of the history because, like you, Brendan, I hadn't known a ton beyond when they did acquire... Well, I didn't... Just to be clear, they didn't buy THQ, right? THQ had gone insolvent and was basically... It was like a you know legal garage sale of both the brand THQ and all their studios and and intellectual properties were sold off and some of them went to Sega and some went to a bunch of other places but uh, I think uh, Nordic Games as it was at the time bought not only the THQ brand but a a good number of their franchises like obviously um, 
you know, Darksiders, for example, uh, was, a, was a big one, I think, that they tried to resurrect and keep going after those acquisitions. Uh, but what's interesting is they themselves, Nordic Games, did go bankrupt at one point almost and then did a massive turnaround strategy. And, and since then, a lot of their acquisitions have been distressed uh, or insolvent businesses, either or their IP, which they've then used to, I guess, grow uh, into the point where they can now buy a solvent and, and uh, medium-sized businesses. So it almost feels like they've got a, a big turnaround sort of focus, which is not uncommon. I mean, in the broader, again, sort of economy, I suppose, there are these groups and people and companies that their specialty is taking failures and turning them around and making them profitable. They don't have to reach, you know, again, Microsoft levels of trillions. They just need to be more money than what they invested to buy them and and then obviously the money invested to grow them. So I think that's where they seem to thrive. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that it's as altruistic, altruistic as that. Oh, to be clear, that's not altruistic. It's opportunistic. <laughs> well, sorry, or even as opportunistic as that. I, I think it is opportunistic, but I think it's in a, a different way. What they do is they look for companies that they can buy they can make a nice and neat announcement to the relevant stock exchange, being their local kind of business, their, their local one. And what happens every time is when they make that announcement, the stock goes up. It just, of course it does, because all of a sudden the company's more valuable. They've got extra stuff and they're worth more. Therefore, the stock value goes up. And a lot of these companies that have massive amounts of you know, divisions and whatever, their main goal at the executive level, the ones that make the decisions about who they buy and all that stuff, the, the, their main goal is to manage the stock value because that's where their jobs come from. That's where their own bonuses come from. So in fact, what they're doing is they're buying assets that they can to boost their um, their returns, uh, their, their stock value, their, their share price, the company value. And I think that's what's happening with THQ Nordic. The, their interest is not so much in terms of saving games or developing new games with classic ips and whatever that happens because that becomes revenue and where it makes sense where it's opportunistic or where there is the opportunity to do so they'll they'll of course follow through with that but they're going to be quite happy to sit on your favorite game property and never do anything about it because they've already got their value from it with buying it they got the stock boost and that's why they bought it so there is a risk that a lot of the stuff that thq nordic now owns is as dead as the stuff that Konami owns. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the uh, looking at, I mean, if you actually read how the guy started, the uh, apparently the founder is Lars. I'm going to butcher this. Wingerforce. He he's one of those classic entrepreneurs. Like he was, you know, he started making money at like 13 with his own secondhand uh, comic book sort of company or little front that he made. So it's you're right. It's all it's all about what's in it for him at the end of the day i don't think he's like some as you said altruistic game fan who's here to bring back the the stuff that isn't perhaps getting as much love as it used to i think that's just more a byproduct of the niche he's been able to and he and the company i should say have been able to find themselves in between you know again your activisions your eas your ubisofts who are playing in a just completely separate field and i mean the, I, I guess this is a bit of a tangent, but you don't want your CEO necessarily to be a great game fan. 
And uh, this is one of the things that annoys me, once again, about the whole game development discourse or whatever. People say, oh, Bobby Kotick doesn't like video games and whatever. Bobby Kotick has a lot of problems, but the fact he doesn't like video games is not one of them. He's the CEO of a company. His job is to run a company. The people that make the games are the ones that are responsible for the games. And that level of accountability, I don't think that a lot of people really quite understand. So this THQ Nordic guy, I don't begrudge the fact that he's out there buying a whole bunch of IPs and sitting on them. That's a business strategy. And the other thing which I didn't mention is, I guess, by having such a big company that has so much IP, they've setting themselves up for an acquisition uh, quite nicely. Mm. Quite nicely. It would only take a a Ubisoft that desperately needs a bunch of IP. It would only take a, an EA, uh, a Microsoft, <laughs> looking for yet another purchase or a Sony to say, hey, you know, if we buy this company, look at all this stuff we get. And suddenly the value of buying THQ Nordic uh, jumps up. So I think that the company is pretty well run. I just don't think the outcomes are great for people that want to play games. Probably before we close it off, do you, what do you think the end game is that we're going to see? Is it just that we're going to have these wall gardens and that there's going to be a decline in the output of gaming? Is, is there a way out of this? Or is this just another factor that goes along the, I guess, along with the other issues that we see in gaming, that there's a drive towards $60, 70 $80 games and there's this expectation that a game has to be a particular length so games are all open world or they have a lot of bloat to them or they're drawn out because otherwise they aren't going to be able to sell or they won't be as critically acclaimed as, as developers and publishers want them to be so they make more money. Is, is this just a bit of a death spiral or... Is there a solution that can be... Fa- or is, is there somehow to navigate the course? Or is it just going to be that that will be a large part of the industry and there'll still be some indie developers out there, smaller publishers and the like that manage to survive in the new environment and you still get those more creatively driven games that I guess arguably we've been enjoying since the indie boom of the late 2000s where you've had a rise in indie developers and a rise in smaller games and a lot of games that provide joyful and really enjoyable experiences. So uh, I guess w- what's the conclusion out of all this? Because I, I guess we have been a bit doom and gloom over the last hour or so. I don't think the trends that have been set in place can be reversed. Uh, I don't think the industry really wants it to. I don't think the governments around the world are about to step in and say hey no more no more of these monopolies excuse me you know we need to we need to save the video game industry it hasn't happened with any of the other industries either we've seen the same consolidation happen to music and to film and literature (laughs) the book industry is in a in a terrible state as well these things are, are trends that are just not going to go away but there are things that we can do to to show that there is there there can be a second tier i guess of video games there can be that uh additional opportunity for people that uh, don't necessarily need to be out there and making massive amounts of money but want to do those creative and independent games and all that the first thing is if an indie or a mid even a mid-tier one because they're disappearing as well and they need to be protected somehow if if those guys come out with a game buy it at full price (laughs) if you can of course i'm not suggesting go bankrupt yourself trying to support the games industry but if you can afford a game at full price then do so Buying a game at discount doesn't actually really help the developer or the publisher anywhere that near as near as people think. People think that if 
I buy a game at any price, then then that's kind of helping. And if a game developer makes more sales, then that must be good. That must be why the sales are, are good. But that, it kind of doesn't work that way. What what works for smaller spaces is if they have a small audience of people that are willing to buy anything at full price. And they do that over a period of years. There are developers out there that have been operating for 30 or 40 years now, uh, very indie developers, and they push their games out and they have a tiny audience, you know, very small audience, but that audience buys their games at full price each time. They don't need to expand. They don't need to play these games. They don't need to be acquired because they have that kind of uh, that, that core audience that are willing to or see value in the work that they're doing. So firstly, buy games at full price if you can afford them, unless it's a big AAA game, in which case do whatever you want because it really doesn't matter. Secondly, support the indie platforms. I would love it if people could... Rather than buy the game on Steam, buy the game on Itch or any of the other platforms that are like Itch that are not Steam because that shows that there's interest there in the very indie market. If people are buying stuff on Itch, then the really experimental things that are happening over there will start to proliferate further and will get even more out of that platform. Uh, At the moment, you're looking at like, 10,000 sales on Steam for every one on each. It's it's really unbalanced. But buying stuff on Steam, again, might feel good, like you're supporting the developer or publisher, but ultimately you're really just feeding into the system that is currently killing those games. If you buy on itch, then you're actually supporting a system that is actively trying to support that indie space. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly echo everything Matt just said. I, you know, I, I think there's definitely going to be continued consolidation in the the AAA space. I think it's, you know, inevitable at this point. There will still be holdouts. You know, a quick reminder, just because a company has the money to afford another company, the, the other company has to want to sell. You can't just knock on, you know, in the same way someone can't just come up to you and be like, I'm buying your car because I have the value of your car in my wallet. You need to want to get to take the money and give them your car it's similar with with companies or it's the same rather you know hostile takeovers and stuff exist but again that that's a whole nother kettle of fish that we don't need to we don't have really the time to go into um so i think there will be some successful holdouts that just don't want to sell on the principle and that'll be good and by the same token i do hope and believe and again if you buy on itch or directly off you know websites uh selling games directly the indie scene will hope be around forever. I think there's just enough passionate developers out there that there's always going to be somebody trying to sell a game independently. And fortunately, I think there are enough people who are savvy enough in the gaming, you know, enthusiast space to have access to PCs, like a you know an open platform, unlike you know Xbox, Switch, and PlayStation, that will continue to participate in that space. How many? people and how much money will be circulating in that space it's it's a bit hard to say um certainly probably not as much as what's flowing through the inevitable streaming um mega companies that that'll be playing at the top but i think i think it'll be more successful than potentially the other independent like artistic mediums like film music etc where i find those maybe just because i'm not as entrenched in them but it's a lot harder to get into the finding every single cool indie song or every single cool indie movie versus, you know, you can explore on itch and there'll be a lot of enthusiast websites that'll help point you in the right direction of cool indie games. So 
maybe that's just wishful thinking, but I think there will be some success there and that will remain for hopefully the remainder of, of the industry's life. No, I definitely agree. I think I echo both of your sentiments. People really should support indie developers where they can and on those open platforms because that's how we promote those creative endeavors and ultimately that's what that's why we're all really into gaming that's why we're enthusiasts that's why we follow the industry because we enjoy those creative endeavors we 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 want that feeling of being delighted when we come across something new or innovative or something that's been done in a way that we didn't think was possible or feasible or just something done really well that we've seen before but has been really refined and maybe there's a new spin on it and we enjoy playing it so I'm sure we'll all be playing games into the decades. Perhaps the industry is going to go in a way that we think, well, I think the industry is going to go in a way that we all abhor and think it's going to be a net negative, but there'll still be the games to play. We're just going to have to dig deep and find them. So unless either of you have any final thoughts you'd like to spruik, I think probably a good time to wrap this up and um, put the bow on. What, what say you two? No, I think I've killed your podcast enough. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all, Matt. I think we need to um, really thank you for coming on again. We've really enjoyed your um, voice on here. And uh, I know I speak I speak for myself, but I think Zach as well, that we do appreciate you coming on and we enjoy really having a chat with you because this has been absolutely fascinating. And I know you said the last time, don't follow you on Twitter. I think that's a <laughs> sort of, um, it's a good... <laughs> It's good device. That's a that's a warning label on the um, podcast wrapper that we send out. Um, but if people do want to read your content, yeah, it's digitallydownloaded.com and on dot net. Is it com or dot net dot net, dot net yeah. sorry digitallydownloaded.net and there is a YouTube channel as well where you um, put videos out. Quite have you been putting more videos out recently, or is that just me noticing them more? Um, I try and do maybe. You know, two to three videos plus at least one or two streams per per week. So, yeah, I think I, I think I'm pretty set in trying to do that at least. But yeah, that that's been going on for I don't know maybe a couple of months now. So, you may have just started to notice. Maybe I'm making more interesting videos. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably speaks more to, about me than you. Um. <laughs> I definitely um, recommend our listeners to check it out because I think it's really good content, particularly your, I always enjoy your reviews on uh, visual novels and JRPGs as well, particularly as we discussed last time. So, If it's all right with you, can I quickly spruik my, my digital magazine as well? <laughs> of course, go ahead. Yeah, so um, I've got a, for, for people that back me on Patreon and I'm just any level, so you know, a dollar a month or whatever is fine, but I do produce a, a 56-page magazine every month um, and... That's not just focused on video games, but pretty much anything to do with Japanese art and culture. So we've got food in there, we've got film, we've got music, we've got literature, we've got, of course, video games. But yeah, it's it's something that people seem to be enjoying. That's a major part of what I do these days. And I just, uh, if anybody's interested in my thoughts on Japan, not just me, actually, I, I do pay quite a lot of freelancers as well. So um, it's a pretty pretty good magazine, I like to think. Fantastic. I'll put a link in the description, show notes of this uh, podcast. Uh, Zach, if people, as always, want to support our podcast, um, find us, leave reviews or contact us, how do they do that? Yeah, you can find us at Blowcart Pod on your social media, such as Twitter, um, or if you're in a podcast service, obviously searching Blowing Cartridges Podcast will we'll probably get you there. 
leave a review, ideally Apple Podcasts, but I'm sure, again, any system you're on, leaving a review can't hurt for, for the people in that ecosystem. Break up the Apple Podcast Monopoly. And uh, you can find myself directly at Egarino and, of course, Brendan, you at Tamazoid. And, yeah, again, thanks, Matt, for coming on. And people should also check out some of Matt's games, speaking of supporting independent games, so <laughs> um, which I'm sure you can find on his website and other places. <laughs> With that, thanks, as always, for listening, everyone, and uh, tune in next time when we will discuss a hopefully equally as um, exciting topic. So thank you, as always, and goodbye. But not goodbye as in, like, don't buy us. I mean, unless you really want to. <laughs> <laughs>